Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, David. I, I, it's been a crossroads moment for me. I've sold my place very quickly. I'm moving out into a desert mountain region nearby, which is kind of where I always wanted to be here. Um, and I think that uh, it, it's a real moment of of crossroads, crisis, and, and new horizon. So I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited for you. We're in a similar position. Rios's family is purchasing uh, 70 acres of land, and we're getting five. So that will be my project over the next, well, forever. I'm just going to be building on that land forever. It's uh, way out in the country, undisclosed location, <laughs> somewhere in Oklahoma. Um, but yeah, we're going to have a little farm with animals and guns and solar panels and all kinds of fun stuff. ATVs, it'll be great. I can't wait to bring my Airstream and just, you know, have a little oh, yeah. bit of, of paradise there. A little bit of target practice and campfire. And I think that's a great idea for you guys to do. And I think it's great for you as a couple. I think it's great for Gus. You know, growing up on the land actually teaches an enormous number of skills that they are no longer taught in schools anymore. So I really support that. And I think that Oklahoma would be beautiful. And, you know, as, when it comes to things like tornadoes, well, you've been through those and, and they don't care, you know, what kind of house you're living in. So you, you'll be fine. I think that's a really cool deal. Yeah. I think congratulations. Absolutely. It's a great thing to look forward yeah. to. Thank you. He and I will be learning how to live that way uh, together. We have a lot of family who live out in the sticks, as it were, and they're very knowledgeable about hunting and fishing and that kind of thing. So um, besides growing up going fishing in the Appalachians with my uncle, I don't, I'm not a very outdoorsy, woodsy kind of guy, but there will be a change over the next decade because I think that it's important. I think that creating your own community uh, away from the suburbs, away from the inner city, is really going to be the move in the next uh, couple of years. This couldn't have come at a more opportune time, honestly, with a lot of the, you know, the weak and doom stuff that we've been seeing. The World Economic Forum put out a new, uh, you know, short little video about well, what's going to happen if the banks crash and you can't access your money. Um, because they like to let you know what's going to happen before before it happens. But we won't get into that just yet. We have a little bit of housekeeping. We want to invite everybody to sign up for our book club. We're going to be starting that the beginning of next year, I believe, is the time that we've chosen. Yeah. And, and Chris is working really hard on this. I'm not exaggerating when I say this will be something that you walk away from with uh, new knowledge and honestly a new frame for how to view art and the artist's life um do you want to say anything else about this Chris? no i, I think that book? is a fair comment this is something uh it's a book by lawrence weschler seeing is forgetting the, the name of the thing one sees about the artist robert Irwin. but it is really about an artistic lifelong journey and it's it's a beautiful example of nonfiction prose which any if anyone is interested in good writing 
Lawrence Weschler is, is a go-to model for that. But I think it's a beautiful, beautiful example of encapsulating with great respect a lifelong journey of an artist. And I think there are a lot of artists amongst us. And this will inspire you. If, you, if, you've, if you've read the book, I'd like to think you, you would enjoy my comments about it. Uh, if you haven't read the book, I think you'll be really inspired and discover some entirely new approaches to your own artistic practice, whatever that may be, but also the decisions you make you know, in your own life. Um, it, it's a very practical book, and Dave and I are trying to ground everything that we say, not in terms just of, of artistic you know, practice or intellectual pursuit, but very much day-to-day -day living, you know, raising children, dealing with uh, partners, dealing with jobs, struggling, you know, we, we, we're struggling, we, we understand that. And, and all of these things, the great inspirational moments in life, they happen within the matrix of struggle, you know, a struggle on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think this will be a really exciting way to kick off the book club. We have wanted to delay it to the new year because the holidays are a little bit fraught. And I think that everyone would agree that the whole world is a bit fraught. So we want to give a, a really good shot at starting this off in the new year when people are a little bit fresh and a little bit welcoming to new ideas. Um, but I put a lot of time into this and I think that um, you'll really enjoy it. it. It's a good course. It's the first of many courses that we're going to launch. Um, we've got a lot of exciting ideas and, and building community and connection is the whole purpose. Uh, the subject is always uh, important, but uh, you know it, it's ancillary to the community idea. So we hope you join us in the new year for the beginning of the No Country Book Club and I guarantee you, I've really uh, put my heart and soul into it. So I think you'll dig it. Excellent. And if you're wondering how to sign up for that, if you're interested, you can email us at thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. But if you're listening to this, that means you're a patron, you're on Patreon. So you can feel free to shoot me a message on there. Just let me know, hey, I'm interested. I'll put you into a spreadsheet. And when we get closer, we can figure everything out as we get closer to the launch. So as you may know, since you listen to the show, every week Chris gives me five words of which I have to choose two to slip into the conversation. It's a fun exercise that has made me more elastic in my thinking. Uh, neither of those words this time are albatross, so you can cross that one off your list. There's only what? A couple, couple tens of thousands of words it could be besides albatross. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but also, he gives me a cognitive challenge. Now, these cognitive challenges have led to uh, book outlines that I've written up that have had some interest from some people. Uh, they have also led to, I, th I think, um, a further expanding of my mind because not only am I trying to slip in two words, neither of which are albatross. I'm also trying to come up with a creative solution to a problem given to me at the beginning of the show. Uh, so Chris, can you, can you give your, your humble student his, uh, 
his lesson for the day or his uh, his prompt, I should say. Yeah. Prompt for the yeah. day. Yeah. And and this is I think a really fun celebratory challenge coming off of last Thursday's celebration, which many people call Thanksgiving and or Friendsgiving, but I think it was a great moment of celebration, hopefully across America, no matter what perspective. And and if it's not if it wasn't celebratory, then I hope it was uh, revisionist in a positive way, you know, because we need to think of positivity. But the challenge here, David, is this, uh, and this is, I think, a good uh, challenge in uh, newly uh, fragmented COVID times when more world travel is a little bit of an issue. We want to sort of jump that barrier, and, and at least imaginatively, I want you to think of if you had the ability to go anywhere in the world to host a fantastic dinner party. You are the host. You can go anywhere. You can go to Buenos Aires. You can go to Venice. You can go to uh, northern China. You can go anywhere you want and you can invite six people along for a fantastic celebratory occasion. And, and those six people can also bring children and animals. Let's just say that you have the, the capability to make that possible. But I, I want you to think about who you'd invite, where you'd go, and, and what kind of theme you would have for the event. I think that, uh, you know, I discovered or rediscovered the famous Winston Churchill quote, this pudding has no theme, you know, and I think that's a little bit true of our entire age at the moment. So we're going to ask you at the end of this segment to choose a destination in the world. It doesn't have to be exotic or far away. It could be just around the corner. Uh, It could be a taco truck, you know, around the corner. But we want to know who you'd invite to celebrate your life and the new possibilities of the future. What sort of food, what sort of theme, uh, create a kind of event for us that we can vicariously participate in. Because I think this is the essence of a lot of good writing. We're creating vicarious events, aren't we? You know? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, and it, this kind of thing is going to become more and more fun, and I think um, a worthwhile exercise to do during things like meditation. I think as travel becomes more and more difficult to come by, um, creative mental excursions, maybe with some light aid from the from the internet. Um, might just be the way that that things go so i will definitely file that away get the gears turning on that much like our last creative challenge this is going to be one of trimming down rather than uh, really searching for where i'd want to go because there are so many places that's right well see this is what i want to do is to have alternating challenges where you are getting out some surgical tools and also where you're having to really just dump a lot of in, you know organic material on a table. So backwards and forwards, this is one of the key messages for our listeners with imaginative challenges. Try to mix things up. Try to be laser-like and also gardener-like. You know, it's a mixture of both. You've got to do both. You've got to plant some seeds and you've also got to get out, uh, you know, 
the weapons. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. All right. So last week we did a deep dive into the week in doom. The week in doom has now reclaimed its rightful space as a brief opener for us. So we're not going to spend too much time on it because we have other interesting things to talk about this week. Uh, there were a few things that I noticed. Number one, the biggest one obviously is the new Omicron variant that was discovered in South Africa. And uh, despite the pleading of the scientist who discovered the Omicron variant, who has said over and over again it is a mild and unstable variant of the coronavirus that has only manifested itself in symptoms of extreme tiredness and a light cough. Uh, the LA Times has a huge headline here. Uh, let me pull this up to make sure that I get this right because it's too good to get wrong. <laughs> the LA Times... <laughs> The LA Times says the Omicron variant adds new peril to the holiday season in California and beyond. And I've seen multiple tweets from people saying, well, this is the end. Now we're fucked. This is it. Uh, it's mild, folks. It is a mild variant that is less dangerous than the Delta variant that is out there. So that's maybe an anti-week in doom. The doom part comes in with... Um, the sneaking suspicion that I've had that there are people who are gluttons for this kind of fatalism and uh, eschatological thinking. Uh, but it's an anti-weekend doom because the Omicron variant is not going to kill you. Now, the other weekend doom is kind of interesting. The Telegraph had an article about the rebuilding of the Notre Dame Cathedral. Theme uh, park. And Theme yes, park. Theme park, right? And this is part of a broader project uh, with with uh, Catholic cathedrals and churches in general that are aiming to modernize their structures into, um, like you said, theme parks, kind of a Disney ride about the history of Christianity. So I'm going to take a brief dive into conspiracy <laughs> land. Uh, which is fun. Did you know that when the Notre Dame Cathedral was burning, uh, Michelle Obama was uh, was watching it from from a dinner party on the uh, what is the river there? It's not is it? It's not the Seine. What is it? The in Paris? Uh, what's the river? yeah the Seine? Yeah, the Seine. Yeah, the Seine. Uh, right. Okay. Okay. Right. I need to go with my gut more often. Uh, but she was on a boat watching it burn uh, with a necklace on that said the word burning. So take from that what you will. Uh, I don't think she burned it down, but it is an interesting synchronicity at the very least. Um, but the rebuilding of it as a sort of neoliberal theme park ride, uh, I won't say too much else because I think that it's so glaringly obvious and on the nose that it does a lot of that heavy lifting for us. But this is what people who are more traditional-minded, uh, people who are devout Catholics, this is exactly what people like them, like myself, and I'm assuming like Chris, do not want to see happen to, uh, you know, these these people these sacred spaces, right? We don't want them to turn into gray uh, dopamine machines for wide-eyed, fat American tourists, right? We want them to maintain a little bit of that sanctity and a little bit of that spirituality. These, these are places of great psychic power. Um, we could do a whole episode. Well, we've, we've talked about psychogeography in the past, but uh, in my opinion, buildings like this are very important. 
the the burning of Notre Dame was a absolute tragedy, um, but potentially a worse tragedy could be what they are planning to do to it. So that's the week in doom. Chris, any thoughts? Well, I I, I support that entirely. I think that um, it's a very strange thing when uh, basically American values of wokeism and and also the larger sort of infotainment idea permeates these great sacred world spaces. I mean, I, I, I really can't imagine that finally infecting uh, the great uh, centers of spiritual culture in India and China. I think that they will resist that. Um, but I think it's very sad when a center of tremendous spirituality, you know, and, and tremendous architectural genius. Um, mm-hmm. We forget the architectural genius part and how long that was in the making and how big a deal that was worldwide. I, I When I was in college, I did my overseas uh, language training just south of Paris in Bourges, which is also the center of a great cathedral. And... Um, the thing that was interesting is that the organist was a blind man who was also a very heavy set individual. And uh, he had to make his way up these incredibly narrow, steep stairs to, uh, to reach the position of, of playing this grand organ, one of the greatest in all of Europe. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the local... Uh, earnest news people said, well, well, can't we get him an elevator? And, uh, you know, and here is the master musician himself. And he said, absolutely not. (laughs) Because it's the walk up those stairs that reminds me of the great tradition of this place and the great responsibility and opportunity I have to play this instrument and to uh, be a part of a world culture. Of, of music and spirituality. And I thought that was a very, very powerful statement at the time. You know, I'm sure he, I, I watched him, you know, it was difficult to do those stairs. Um, mm-hmm. But he wouldn't have had it any other way. And I think that we always right. want things to be, you know, let's have an elevator, let's, let's have a discount, let's have, you know, make let's have an app and make everything easier for everyone because we want access and inclusivity. You know, no, maybe that's not the angle to take. Maybe inclusivity is exactly wrong, you know, uh, because actual ability, skill, merit, um, devotion, devotion um, is a real part of the whole mix. I mean, he played the organ with great devotion, and I don't think that inclusivity, because he was disabled in the sense of being blind or heavy set would have really mattered to him you know um i don't i don't remember him mentioning <laughs> you know and and no one mentioned that in the article it was like no he's just he's the organist and that's how he wanted to be seen um so mm-hmm. i think that we need to protect the essence of of the past and to appreciate well, maybe not everything is good for everyone, you know? But maybe we shouldn't just try to make everything available, you know? 
I mean, right. what's the problem in that? You know, that why is it? How would it be special otherwise? I mean, I actually don't want, you know, an inclusive idea about my lover. You know, I, I I'm not really in favor of that. Um, right. You know, so we have territoriality. We have, you know, a little bit of responsibility. You don't want necessarily anyone coming up and talking to to Gus. You know, mm-hmm. you know, so let's just accept that there are some boundaries and that boundaries are not always bad. Absolutely. All right. On that note, the meat of the show. We've reached the meat. So, Chris, what would you like to talk about today? Well, you know, I started thinking about the L word. You know, I didn't even know what the L word was until a few days ago. And uh, there's always some new word, right? Well, you know, of course, the L word is now looting. You can't mention looting. Uh, You can apparently say smash and grab organized criminal behavior, but you can't say looting for all sorts of strange reasons. But it got me thinking, you know, and this is one of our ongoing themes of language and where language leaves us as a species, because language is the, the defining feature of our species. It seems to me that we overprivilege words um, and language, and yet we also denigrate them. I know that for a fact, you know, people say words matter. This comes up in my media analytics all the time. It comes up constantly. And yet, writers are paid far less than they were 20 years ago, with the exception of a handful of people at the very top of the pyramid, very top. Emerson said the corruption of man is followed by the corruption of language. I'd like to propose exactly the opposite. I think the corruption of language is the corruption of humanity. That's my starting point. What do you think of that? I think it's a good one. I'd like to tease it out. So the first... The first pushback I could think of would be this idea that languages evolve. The idea that, you know, that we're not speaking in Old English or Middle English, that words take on different meanings, slang becomes entered into the dictionary. Um, what would you say to that? One, the shoot, the April, March, yeah, yes, absolutely, of course. Uh, we... Well, I, I, I think for starters, uh, that's not always true across world languages. I think in Mali, I think in Iceland, uh, I think there are about five other countries where people are quite comfortable with language that was spoken and, you know, created a thousand years ago. So English is, is more absorptive. And uh, we do, we know for a fact that English incorporates more words from other languages than any other of the 10 major languages in the world. So yes, we, we have open borders that way. And, and yes, we are evolving. And, um, but on the other hand, here, I mean, I, I think here's the point. There are about 1 to 1.1, million words acknowledged that are viable in the English language today. And the vocabulary, even amongst educated people, is about 3,000 words and is declining to 800 and now recently to almost uh, just above 450. 
Hmm. I mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, in percentage it's hard to term, get your head around. Well, it's very frightening. I mean, if that's not the dark ages uh, on our doorstep right now, I, I really don't know what the dark ages would look like because I think you're getting to a bad level of interpretive dance uh, and grunting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and shaking slurpees and handguns around as a way of communicating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, languages do evolve. They also devolve. And um, I, I think that when they devolve, we have to look very carefully. And no language is devolving faster than English. We know that for a fact. We know that Cantonese and Mandarin, at least, are not devolving on the same scale that, that English is. Um, and I, I just wonder what's going on with that. And, and I, I fear that we're losing the capacity for discourse, for even intimate communication. I mean, what about the communications between, you know, partners? A bit, pillow talk, you know? Is pillow talk as interesting as it was 100 years ago? I, 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 I strongly suspect not. So I want to buckle down on this word corruption, because I think that is the key to Emerson's quote. Uh, what does it mean for something to be corrupted in, in your mind? Uh, a, a change in the ratio of static or noise to signal. Uh, I, I think that it means mm, okay. a radical yeah, yeah, right. increase of, of noise and a radical decrease in signal and a radical increase in effort to identify signal out of noise. That's what it means to me. That's, that is very interesting because I didn't even think of it that way. But yes, even when you're watching your television, you can get corruption from a bad signal. You get those weird colored blocks that are all over the screen. Uh, I was thinking about corruption in terms of you know, political figures or police officers or people who've become corrupt, uh, who have used their power uh, to their own ends, not for its intended purpose. And I see a lot of that with language. Uh, I want to say these days, but really it's been going on for about the past 10 years, I would say. Words just don't mean anything anymore. They're, 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 they, they appear to be weapons. Oh, uh, I think they are. Use. I think that that's why we have the idea of the narrative politically and rhetorically and in, in the media is that, that, that words are weaponized in ridiculous ways and they become codes upon codes upon codes that are manipulated for uh, morally and ethically corrupt reasons. I think that's what you mean is that that there's a level of ethical and moral corruption. And I, all I would say to that is I think that's an in, inevitable consequence of the corruption of language, that once you begin to really degrade the purity of language, the sense of language, the, the consistency and consensus aspect of language, then, yeah, you, you do lead to, to backroom you know, actual political uh, corruption, inevitably. Right, right. So when, yeah, when, so if language is our mechanism for sense-making and also for communication, 
if that becomes corrupted on the communicative scale, it can corrupt the sense-making. Uh, and I, I guess people can get swept up in it, but it's also, I think, a bit more nefarious than that, as we've kind of said here. Um, so what do you think, like, where do you think that it goes from here? Do you think it devolves into grunts? Do you think, that, do you think that we sort of just have a, a, a roster of 20 words that we just kind of say and gesture? Uh, is this, are we just going to, now that we're all going to be in meta, right? In this weird second life, uh, maybe we'll just talk in LOL. What do you think of LOL speak and emoticons and things like that? Emojis, I mean. Well, I think that the death of the mind, um, mm. and I think that they are the the tragic uh, interim step before a, a total dark ages of loss of connection at, at all, because they're highly generational. They're incredibly micro-specific to communities. And I think that's an interesting point about them, is that they really are there to define uh, micro-generational, micro-social interest groups, uh, what game, you know, video game community are you part of. It's, it, it's part of a deep identity politics sort of idea. But, you know, I, I think back to um, Clive James, who was one of three great public Australian intellectuals, along with Jermaine Greer and Robert Hughes, Hughes was the art critic who left for New York, and James and Jermaine Greer went to London, and and really were in in a more, you know very important intellectual figures back when we had public intellectual figures. Uh, James uh, is an author. He he ran a television series, did a lot of great interview work, um, but I remember him saying you know back in the nineteen eighties. And I went back and looked at this interview, and he said, art, and especially writing, this is the mid-80s, okay? Art, and especially writing, has become the communications arm of an increasingly murky notion of the civil rights movement in America. A strange inversion occurs. I like that phrase. A strange inversion occurs and will become more prominent as literature becomes more synonymous with social justice, the notion of social justice will become both more rigid and more confused. And I think that's a world of, of, of thought in, in a very short frame. I, I think that's an immensely insightful idea that how language has the enormous potential to completely balderize and confuse it, its apparent subject and its apparent uh, goal in, in an empathetic kindness sort of sense and, and really create mass havoc. And I wonder if that isn't what's happened. And I, I think the answer there is uh, we have to be a little bit more scrutinizing about how language is used and abused and also how it's being policed. You know, I think this idea that looting is not, you know, no longer an acceptable verb for reasons that are entirely dubious. I mean, you know, 
really and and they actually confess their own dubiousness in 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 their own explanation you know you can't say looting because that employs black people it's like really did it i don't know it did did i mean who told me that right you know i think right. that's completely right. Right. bizarre why why would you why would you say that and then be the liberal supporter of you know communities of color or claim to be that that just oh, seems dude, very odd telling each other yeah liberals tell on each other or on themselves all the time they'll say something and it'll take me aback for a second and i'll think well i didn't say that you you said that where did that come from yeah how did you think that i meant black people so this idea of literature becoming synonymous with social justice and then the notion of social justice becoming more rigid and more confused is very interesting to me have you ever seen these old uh, newspaper articles about the dangers of women reading? Yeah. How you want to how you want to keep women from reading? So these articles, the idea of them is that women shouldn't be allowed to read because they often confuse reality for the things that they read. And I would like to update that. I'd like to do a little social justice of my own here and, you know, de-sexist those texts and say I think a lot of people start to get confused between reality and what they see on TV or read in a book. I said read in a book, uh, hope springs eternal, but let's just go with what they see on TV, right? Um, what literature does when it's clunky and not doing what I think art is supposed to do is it creates uh, worlds of black and white. And I don't mean race, I mean good and evil, you know? And I think that when you're talking about something like civil rights or social justice, it is uh, on one hand, on one end of the spectrum, it is black and white. Uh, but once you move past some very basic truths and some very basic civil rights and social justice, it becomes increasingly murky. And the response to murkiness can't be more murkiness, right? It can't, it can't be attempting to pin down things that don't have easy answers with easy answers. And that's where I think James is going with both more rigid and more confused. Because what you're getting from literature that's doing this, that's acting as a propaganda arm of these of these larger movements is you're, you're getting impressionable people to think that very complex things are actually very simple. And, and so you end up with people, and I see this every day, who contradict themselves from the second they wake up until the moment they go to sleep, but are willing to go to the mat with you over this stuff that makes no sense. Well, you know, it's interesting with, uh, you know, the exposure to the mass market of, of female audiences, at least in America and the UK. I mean, point of fact, I mean, they actually drove an enormous amount of literary consumption beginning in the early 19th century, uh, all the way, th certainly through the heart of the rise of, of, of industrialism and real, true mass communications. A great deal of it was aimed at women. Sentimental literature, capital S, capital L, it was an enormous genre. <laughs> And uh, it was it was certainly targeted at white women of a certain class, but it it, it did extend to um, it was it was a little bit intersectional in terms of cross class. It wasn't entirely uh, the aristocratic or or wealthy 
white women of the time. But a large portion of, of the, the idea of culture was to introduce some vitamin C and vegetable oil into the mix of that sentimental framework and to elevate, mm -hmm. you know, we've got to elevate everyone, don't we? Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's a little bit of a problem. So women were actually more exposed to this elevation of, of, of you know, consciousness raising, uh, particularly from, you know, the 1880s through the 1920s. They, were the, they bore the full brunt of it. They were also, you know, not surprisingly very much on the forefront of the post-abolitionist movement and the anti-Jim Crow. There were a lot of good things that came out of it, um, particularly in the Northeast but of America. But on the other hand, it was, it was a conscious attempt to manipulate consciousness and social attitudes that... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I f frankly find most of that, almost all of that literature is invisible today. You have to be a PhD scholar to really look into what were the major works of that time. And none of it makes it into the gender studies programs of our 10 major universities in America. I can guarantee you that because I've looked into this. Uh, and yet these things were bestsellers in their time. So there's a, a lost history of the attempt to reach and galvanize at least the American white literate female mature age audience from 1850 to World War I. Uh, a lot of that, that history is lost, uh, unless you're really you know, a, a puzzler and, and willing to, to do some library work. But I think that the idea that consciousness raising by you know by conscious intent and this was in fact what you know that i'm not talking about suffrage or women's rights in a more explicit sense um that that would come out of that movement but a lot of it was was just simply the message of be a better person which i you know frankly i don't think that's what a lot of people want and i think that uh, particularly when you've done a hard day's work, when you've cleaned toilets, when you've made food, when you've wiped butts, when you've, uh, you know, just are living, you know, in tough times, you don't want to be told that there's some sort of moral failing in you that you have to uh, somehow deal with. So in, in a weird way, I think what James was saying is that literature has moved into a kind of church-like you must do this you must you know confess you must yeah. and this is what john mcwarder is now talking about with the new uh anti-racist movement as a kind of religion it's it's people who have denigrated religion in all its traditional forms whether it be the you know the four major religions in the world or their variants, uh, but they now want to still make self-flagellation, shaming, uh, public uh, acquiescence, and some sort of virtue uh, signaling or at least virtue claim. Um, a part of their program and 
what a weird thing for what was about fun and world adventure and the the failings of humanity. I mean, look at, you know, the great world literature is all about the failings of people. You know, look at the Thousand and One Nights. Every other story is about some sort of romantic betrayal or some sort of magical intervention because of, you know, whatever. And it's a beautiful example of, and all the fairy tales of the world, I mean, they don't make any sense at all. They're always about gruesome stuff happening. And the whole idea of heroes and villains is in fact a very radical idea that doesn't mesh well with the idea of social justice and moral virtue. You know, it doesn't sit well with it at all. Right, exactly, exactly. But that's what seems to be what people really want these days. And I have some thoughts about why that might be, uh, particularly, I don't know, narcissism and cults of youth worship and things like that. But there is something really interesting in this, this social justice lens of literature uh, that you wrote about here in your note, and that has to do with uh, the erasure of the past. So I wanted you to speak on that a little bit because this was really meaty and something that I think we could talk about for, for quite a bit. Okay, well, thank you. Um, look, from my point of view, um, you know, and I, I, I wouldn't have had this perspective 10 years ago so much, but I, I do solidly have it now. I think many people today want all the technology, all the convenience, all the possible life expect, you know, expectancy and knowledge resources created by people of the past. You know, and yet, you know, they also want the right to condemn any aspects of the social milieu from which this knowledge and innovation has emerged if they don't approve of them. You know, any, they seek to maximize access to the intellectual property. I think that's a good way to think of it. The intellectual property created to date uh, while asserting, you know, a moral superiority over not just specific individuals of the past, but a massive collective smear on racial and cultural levels, you know? And I have a real problem with that. I mean, because, you know, I'm a white person. I'm not claiming to be Sir Walter Raleigh, you know? Sir Walter Raleigh was cooler than I could ever be, you know? And I'm not claiming for whatever was wrong with him. I'm not... And he was beheaded in the Tower of London and his heart was, you know, was cut out and buried in a velvet bag, you know? And I, I'm not that cool. So people who go, well, oh, you know, all, you know, white people are, you know, this and that... I think that's just an enormous sort of Walmart stupidity of today that just is really unconscionable, you know. I, I think that, you know, I, I would really listen when people say, I don't want to uh, be on the grid. I don't want to drive a car. I don't want to have access to the Internet. Uh, I want to reject the intellectual property created by the past because I think it's tainted. I think it's morally tainted. I would have enormous respect for someone who says that. Um, I really would. I, and I would, 
have respect for them, even if it were difficult, of course it would be difficult for them to execute that plan. You know, they might have to, you know, cut some corners, you know. But I, I, I like that idea of saying, I'm not going to be party to a civilization that is tainted with moral uh, decrepitude. But I'm not really too keen on people saying, oh, look, you know, some of the people who left Africa really misbehaved. And yet I'm going to just take all the benefits of their culture and then also attack everything that I don't think is good about them. You know? No, Mm -hmm. I don't like that idea. I think that's bullshit. Yeah, and I think that the key word there is attacked. There's a difference between acknowledging and attacking something and attempting to elevate yourself above those things as though you somehow wouldn't have been a part of it if you were there at that time. Uh, As a matter of fact, I know that most of these people would have been a part of it because of the way that they act now give them any little bit of power and they what do they do with it they immediately want to you know see their enemies you know driven into prison camps and their women raped and their children torn from them i've seen some pretty gnarly shit recently uh with from people who don't like anti-vaxxers uh you know posts about you know i want to see the government come in and you know hold uh you know parents down while they force vax their kids and you know just really ugly stuff so Let's not pretend like we've gotten past this right. bloodlust that, that was in the past. Um, but, you know, I was, you know, you send me, you send me these notes um, and they always give me a lot to think about. And I was thinking about this one today as I was going on a walk. And this idea came to me of being at a base camp at the, you know, at the tree line of a jungle and going out into the jungle uh, with all of you know the, the modern amenities with you know, GPS and cell phone and, and what have you and some people want to uh, leave that base camp entirely right we can think of that base camp as the past as you know and in that base camp there are relics of a society that's racist and misogynistic and homophobic and all of these things that we don't like uh, and they want to go somewhere. They want to go through this jungle to get to a new place where they can build their utopia, right? And I personally, I just want to go into the jungle. And I want the jungle to grow out and overtake that base camp. And I don't want anybody to necessarily die or get eaten by panthers in the process. But, you know, could happen. Shit happens, right? But I want... I. I I just I I had this image of of progress as being this idea that I'm going to cut down trees and make a path forward to a new uh, a new utopia and in my allegory I want to eat treat bark and you know maybe get mauled by a coyote or two with my cell phone still with me right <laughs> I want I I just you know a balance is what I want I want to <laughs> engage in a, a sense of responsibility with the with my environment and to utilize the the tools you know how pissed i would be if i was a spirit ancestor right now and people were trying to throw out my contributions that people have indoor plumbing man they have i have the heater on in my house right now because it's cold outside um this yeah who the hell thought of that right you know right (laughs) what a a great idea that was heads up you know yeah this right 
Right. This whole idea that you want to go back and retroactively excise all the all the pieces that you find unsavory about the past is um, it's disrespectful, right? But and because what you end up doing is you end up finding a scapegoat. This goes back to Gerard, and you end up finding someone to blame, some group to blame. I think we all know who that group is right now, and. Uh, people feel better uh, having their little whipping boy that they can that they can go back to. But really, if you go back far enough, nobody doesn't have blood on their hands. We all have ancestors who've eaten people. So I say we live with it, right? And we go back to thinking about um, what are we actually doing with with language. And I think that a key element there is to treat language the way people who know how to use guns treat treat guns right you respect the weapon you don't point it at people unless you intend to use it unless you're Alec Baldwin um, <laughs> unless you're unless you're Alec Baldwin. that was a good one uh you know you keep them clean you keep your uh you go out to the range you practice you stay sharp um that is what I would like to see people do with language and to engage with the past it's all one jungle right our notions of the past present and future are fraught as they as they are as we've said on previous episodes of this show so that to me seems like a way forward for all that um well embracing it all you know this ties back to a a a very big subject about work and storytelling and interhuman connection you know, I actually happened to be on the site in, uh, in West Africa at the time. And someone said to this local village group of women, and I mean, just imagine telling some West African women what, what's what. You know, you have to be an idiot to even try that. You know, yeah. I mean, that's just not a good idea. And uh, the idea was like, well, why don't you live closer to the water? Because it seems like carrying the water back to the village is a big deal. And one woman, and you know, she was, she was, she was big. I'm not going to apologize. West African women are sometimes big in a lot of good ways and a lot of just, you know, just ways. She was big in every way. And but she was a very good speaker of English. And she said, you know, certain stories and day-to-day happenings take a certain amount of time to tell. And that's one reason that we are a certain ways away from the water. The other reason is because other people need to be near the water and the third reason is that some other creatures sometimes approach the water and this is a controlled interaction you know between humans and other animals and uh the the, uh, the person in question who was actually a a, a german speaking very british english shut the fuck up 
because those are three really good answers. Stories and gossip and women's business and neighborhood stuff takes a certain amount of time to talk about and it's important. And that may be more, well, as important psychologically as the water is physically. Two, other people need to be near the water. You can't control and own everything. And three, we live with other animals who are also dependent on water. I, I think that's a really great position for humanity, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so too. And I think that the direction that I'd like to go next time, uh, you have two notes here that I think are really worth uh, unpacking. The first one is that even if somebody has a moral stance that is correct by today's standards, it doesn't actually make them moral or ethical. So I, think I would like to unpack that next deeper. time. Yeah, I think that really is an important yeah. um, point. I think it's a great starting point for our next show that just simply the claim of morality and virtue, uh, which is so part of, of, of liberalism and social media culture today, needs to be uh, unpacked and, and perhaps, I don't think attacked, I think interrogated. You know, I think interrogated is a fair word. Um, and if people see that as attack, well, I'm sorry. I think it's just about questioning that perspective. I would really be happy to start with that next time. Um, and also, I think that, that um, an extension is, is to examine this idea of to what extent we really can revise the past. I mean, today is today because of yesterday. You know, I yes, mean, that, yep, that was the next one. Yeah, I, I, I really think all our attempts to to do change or if you like damage tradition, revise the past and amend human development retroactively. I, I, I think they fail. I think they fail philosophically and I think they fail practically. So, you know, you can't unring a bell. You can destroy a bell. And I would like to look at the difference between those two as, as a starting point next time. Because I think I do have two possible theories that are really relevant in, in how this is happening. And it ties into our bigger uh, you know, concerns about the ghost radio signal, the idea of culture, the denigration of language. Uh, but I think that's a good starting point for next time. It, it's maybe you know, too much to get to for now. Resonance and oscillation, too, yeah. are big factors in that. The idea of unringing a bell. Well, you can't. Yeah. So that is where we will go next time. I think I'm ready to to take people on a journey. And We're going to go on that beautiful celebratory meal. We need some celebration, David. Take us. All right. We're going, we're going to Iceland. Oh. <laughs> we're going to Iceland. Far out. Yeah. Far out. We're going to fly into Reykjavik. <clears throat> we're going to fly into Reykjavik. We're going to have a great couple of days right i would personally i mean the blue lagoon you have to go that's probably iceland's biggest attraction the the hot springs um i would also like to see the name isn't coming to me right now but it's a, a beautiful landscape where uh uh slight near or sleep near odin's horse right mm-hmm. uh sort of touched down and created this this great valley that looks like a horse a horseshoe um that would be a really cool one and then we would end the day at uh Reykjadalur, uh which is called the, the smoky valley and uh, it's this place where um basically there are multicolored algae and uh silica and sulfur 
in all of these little hot springs that shoot up great geysers of steam uh, and it's very colorful and green and lush and we would be treated to some local uh, cuisine some fish maybe a nice fish fry perhaps and uh, you know if we're lucky we get some northern lights if we go during the right time of the year uh, because I've been thinking a lot about Iceland in particular. It's not a place that I think that I could live because I, I'm not sure how 24 hours of sunlight and 24 hours of darkness uh, would would work exactly. I'm sure you'd get used to it. People live there for thousands of years. But I think that all of the volcanic activity and the moon rocks and this kind of primordial magical landscape I think would do a lot of detoxing from where we are now so for this particular meal and journey we're putting that we're putting the phones in a faraday box and and you're not you're not getting them back until we're done because because we're, we're gonna we're gonna hang out with each other and uh in this beautiful landscape and just vibe okay well i've got two things here I, one i just have to share uh, because it's Iceland. Iceland committed to Christianity f wholesale in the year 1000 AD. And there is a great story which I love to tell because I can imagine being this priest, a priest from Ireland, coming over the water mm -hmm. to rural Iceland, going out into the turf, you know, huts under the volcanoes struggling to meet the parishioners of a still very new and fragile religious idea. And he's a wayfarer, uh, not just a Christian, he's a wayfarer and dependent on hospitality. So he goes to this distant Icelandic farm and uh, they welcome him, they welcome him. And they invite him to dinner, which is very much to his liking because he's very hungry, you know? He's a wayfarer, he's dependent on hospitality. And he's enormously pleased when they all say a prayer to Jesus Christ, our savior. He thinks, wow, this is really working. This magic is, is really great. And then, and then out comes another kind of object a mummified horse penis <laughs> and they ask him to say a blessing over this as well <laughs> and i just love that story because i think you know i i my father used to tell that story and i just love it because i think you know yes we all are strangers and pilgrims all the time and you gotta play it quick and on your feet, you know? Once they, you know, they've said yes, the blessing over Christ, yes, thank you, thank you very much. Well, here's the horse pizzle, you know? And uh, yeah. you gotta bless that too. So I think that's a, a, you know, a little bit of a story. I look, I want, I hope that I'm invited to the hot springs, uh, you know, in Iceland when that happens. I hope I'm invited to the new rural compound uh, with solar panels and um, poetry everywhere and automatic weapons and uh, yes. 
Yes. Maybe we'll both get our helicopter licenses, you know. Um, so yeah. that was good. That was good work there. I think that's fine. Excellent. Of course, you're always invited. You're invited everywhere. Automatic weapons and live performance. There that's you what go. We'll do out there. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, I I think we've come around to uh, well to practical tip time, have not we? Uh, we have indeed. Okay. Well, I've been thinking about um, always the practicality of the advice. You know, I think it's really important to. Um, we all have big dreams and big ideas, and I think there are a lot of cool programs. I really love the masterclass video programs. I think there's a lot of great online learning. Uh, you know, we're not short of really, you know, great ideas, but um, I want to think about some of the deep lessons I've learned in my life. And uh, I did get a chance to, in the old days, work with people who are in the black bag uh, world of military intelligence and... Um, you know, they were mercenaries, they were propagandists, they were CIA operatives, you know. They were some bad people. Uh, but their, their lessons, I think, are very sound. And one of the things they told me was to never try to change a direct major habit directly. Always work at it indirectly indirectly and this is the first rule of psyops people who know this world can look into this and and find it's always true you do not change hearts and minds by direct assault you do it by little tiny tiny things and i i just ask you to drill down in your own life to find a, a somewhat trivial value to change and look at that. And I, I have looked at that myself on many levels. And it starts on a really ridiculously basic level of putting your shoes on in different orders every day. Mm-hmm. And also, I noticed that I, I'm right-handed. You know, many people are, the majority of people are. If I go to crack an egg, I crack an egg on the right-hand side of a dish. You know, I'm, I probably usually do two to make scrambled eggs and then, you know, swish it around with a fork. What happens when I do it the other way? What happens when I, I crack an egg on the left-hand side? Well, I'll tell you what happens. It's, it's awkward. It's fundamentally mm-hmm. awkward and confusing. If you have the loss of your dominant hand and you try to do your signature my signature is actually ridiculous I, I have the worst handwriting in the world and I, I have a, a little bit of a neurological sort of issue anyway so I'm getting to the point where my whole signature is kind of implied you know it looks like a, a chimp you know with a pen mm-hmm. um, but I, I ask you to really experiment with hand dominance uh, eye dominance. I mean, do you, I mean, I, 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 I went back to the archer ranch the other day and, and discovered 
again, that my dominant eye isn't what you'd think it would be. You know, mm. it's not mm. it's not the obvious idea. It, it's something's wrong, uh, but it's not wrong. It just is what it is. But you have to reposition your whole body around these neurological and muscular patterns of behavior. Break an egg on the other side of the dish. Use your left hand if you're right handed. If you're left handed, use your right break down these patterns at a really fundamental level. It doesn't cost you any money. You know, this is not a weekend workshop for $300 or, you know, $500 or you don't have to apologize for what color your skin is or whatever. You know, this is just something you can do yourself. And if you do investigate these little things, and I've got a really monstrous... uh, program coming up for Christmas. I'm saving it for the holiday season, not because it's Christmas or because, you know, I believe in Christmas, but just because it's the end of the year. I really believe that if you get with an idea of a tiny, tiny change that you can totally control, you will look at the entire world differently, you know? So change hands, change hands. Perfect. I love it. It reminds me a lot. Connor Habib said something similar about, in fact, handwriting. He, he recommends that you attempt to write your signature differently. There's another, uh, and this sort of ties into our exercises also, um, but the idea of kind of speaking poetically, getting out of habits of thought as well as action. And if you find yourself responding to a certain situation with a certain set of words, attempt, uh, you know, nonsense speak or, um, or just, you know, maybe just a different way of saying it. So I like that. And I am thinking about all the patterns that I go through every day, because I I have a bit of a touch, uh, speaking of neurological issues of OCD and the orders that I do things. Right. And the, the idea of switching that up in any way sets my teeth on edge. And that's why I got to do it. I got I to gotta switch it up. You know, if you can, it really is an important thing to think about, just, just to be able to, you know, there's so many things that we can't switch up in our lives. We can't switch off. We can't control the flow of information worldwide. The media, the nonsense will go on. There'll be new diseases. There'll be new politicians. The dollar will change in exchange rate. We can't do anything about it. So we have to look at what we can change, you know, that, that, that is my increasingly my message of, you know, and think about just turning the pages of, of a book, mm-hmm. which way do you turn them? You know, think about just reversing every order and, and looking at words as, as things that you can break down. You know, a word is handed to you like here, you know, H E R E, you know, well, what is that mm-hmm. spelled backwards? Well, you can work that out pretty quickly, but you have to think about it for a moment, don't you? But you can mm-hmm. think about it. You can break those characters down. They're not just handed to you. <clears throat> you know, you, you can right. break them down. Yeah. You can own a little bit of the strangeness. You know, that's the thing. Own the strangeness, rewrite the code. You know, <laughs> that's, the, that's the issue. Absolutely. All right. What do we got dream-wise? 
Okay, well, I'm in a strange phase, and I, I, I'm, I'm open for, uh, you know, suggestions about what this means, because I've been a lifelong recorder of my dreams, but something that has really been pronounced in the last uh, two months, uh, and I, I, I know because I keep a really good index of my dreams, I've had some really strong connections with my feet, as in walking in water in, in, in cities uh, with rain and, and flooding. Uh, last night I, had, I was in bare feet in a parking lot with a very sharp sort of gravel sort of feeling. And I was in particularly sort of um, thin socks, kind of socks that, um, you know, well, everyone knows what thin socks are versus, you know, thicker socks. You sort of wear those with certain kinds of shoes. But I didn't have the shoes. And so I've, I've dealt with a lot of feet-related things. And, but in the dream last night, there was a woman who, I guess she would have been, I don't know, well, not completely age inappropriate, but too young for me. Yeah. And but a little, I think we could say thick or voluptuous uh, mm -hmm. would be the way to describe her. And she was following me, and I was out in this parking lot in these thin socks, and it was some sort of. I don't know, training event or workshop sort of thing. And I think I'd done my bit and uh, I was now just looking at the stars. And she came out. She had on a, a beige kind of ordinary top, certainly not show off boobs, you know, although she had a really obviously nice figure and green shorts. And she said, why do you think you're here right now when you could be at another really important place at the same time? And I invited you to that place, but you refused. And I have no idea what she was referring to in that, but I thought it was very interesting. I, I was so I was very very connected with my feet. Again, mm -hmm. this is the mm -hmm. third time within four weeks that this dream, and this does not come up in thirty years of dream record. Really, does not. Mm. It does not. There's no feet yeah. recognition. There was a kind of woman who. I actually thought was really, I, the more I, I looked at the, the more appealing she became. Uh, and yet I, I have to admit, I probably would have not, you know, hit on her at a bar. And then right. also she said, you are here, but you could have been somewhere else. And I invited you to that place. So I'm not sure what that means. There's a lot of angles you said that this often involves water, wet feet. Mm -hmm. Water oftentimes represents 
sex. Um, although I'm not a huge fan of this means this, a rigid interpretation of dream symbols, because I think it's much more complex than that. The idea of being in wet socks, besides being uh, making me feel very uncomfortable, because there's nothing that I hate more on this earth than having a wet sock. If you get a little splash of rainwater in my chucks or something, mm. and I'm walking around with a wet sock, it's 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 bugging me. It's annoying me. Um, but I'm thinking about how feet connect us to the earth in terms of grounding. And the fact that you have not just you, you're down to that one last layer before you're connected. And even that layer is soaked through. Um, so it feels uh, very much like some sort of dam bursting is the wrong word because you're you're already in it. You're already in this this thing. And there's just a little piece of cloth that's only technically separating you right from what's all I, I think you. that's really yeah so, I think it's this membrane that, this thin membrane yeah and you see how that ties into what she's saying you know why would you be here when you could be somewhere else at the same time and I invited you it's this idea of something that's already going on that maybe another Chris somewhere is already engaged in and there's this thin membrane that's keeping you where you are rather than than being over there that's 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 all i can really think of is this concept of uh of of just something it's not something that's intrinsic in you because it's external it socks it's something that you're you're putting on every day you're you're choosing to wear those socks but nevertheless it's something that is keeping that grounding from from happening from just being in a thing and i wonder i wonder about the youth of this person too the fact that she's a younger individual i'm thinking about that in terms of what sort of spirit that might represent <coughs> did you get any impression that this person was related to you could potentially be you anything like that well or was this a stranger well she didn't feel like a total stranger she felt like i don't know i mean i would have said that that you know she was like 38 you know maybe a young 40 so not completely inappropriate um mm -hmm. more like someone that i'd kind of ignored or not really appreciated enough i mean the more I, I i i looked at her and talked with her the more engaged i became with her and i thought what was i thinking about you know that she wasn't attractive she, she's completely attractive um sure and i it was kind of getting in touch with my feet this is the weird thing about these last three dreams of like very feet oriented dreams of feeling very tactile and then also more connection with people and in this well i'm actually in all three dreams cases women you know um uh, another review of i think people might remember like the um 
the homeless woman who showed me her shrine. Um, I wonder if it's just a, re, you know, kind of a, a review of, of, you know, what's important, who am I dismissing, how to get grounded, how to be on the ground with my feet, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And feet take you from place to place. They do. Also. Oh, that's an important, yeah, that's a good point. That's absolutely, because you only, yeah, actually, that's really important, because you only know your feet when you move. You don't know them when right. you're just standing, actually. That, right. Yeah, that's right. actually right. the right. that's actually really important. If you're standing, you you can be wearing shoes or barefoot or whatever. You don't actually no. That's that's really important. It's the movement. It's a movement mm-hmm. anywhere, even a step. Yeah, I think right. that's really important. Right, which links in obviously to what she's saying about you could be in this other place, but you're here. It's interesting that she said at the same time. Mm. That's that's puzzling to me but you know it's enigmatic in a way that i think i think one of the the keys here are obviously the feet the socks but the idea of being in another place at the same at the same time is very interesting to me and that i and i wonder if turn down that, that opportunity you, be, you know and that you yeah that you didn't that you turned it down and I wonder if you went to that place, would you be wearing shoes or would you be completely barefoot? <laughs> right, you know? right. Oh, wow. That's a good question. That's a very good question. I, you know, I tend to think that, you know, I, I think somehow the, 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 the thin socks in the gravel parking lot, uh, I probably would have been wearing shoes somewhere else. You know, I would have known mm-hmm. and been more comfortable but maybe I wouldn't have met her either, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe, or maybe you would have, because she was there too. She was in this other place also. Yeah, she was capable of being, well, see, she was capable of being both places, and I wasn't, uh, you know, you know? Uh, uh-huh. That's, that's very interesting too. So then we're moving into this idea of maybe a kind of inner duality, of being able to hold something in both hands. Uh, two ideas, maybe opposing ideas, two places you couldn't, you wouldn't think that you could be. But we're we're cracking it. We're getting close here. It's the Terence McKenna idea that sometimes you meet people who really are non-local. You know, right. uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I I think that that's one of our big ideas right from the start. And I I'm really excited about how we've always tried to bridge the more lateral science ideas of, of, you know, Bell and quantum mechanics with anthropology and, you know, mythology and John Lilly and psychedelic, you know, behavior, because um, we just don't know the answer. But I, I really appreciate you engaging with this because it was a very powerful thing for me because both the the, the, the feet in thin socks and this mm-hmm. encounter with a woman who was initially sort of plain looking to me, who began to look more and more attractive and really viable as a lifetime partner over the course of a few starlit minutes in this weird parking lot. And I, I think there was a, you know, I don't know if you know the, the, the restaurant franchise Stuckey's, 
but I think there might have been a Stuckey's sign darkened out somewhere across the highway. So it was a it was an odd dream. And uh, well, I mean, Chris, I, I mean that <laughs> that's very interesting, right? Stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, <laughs> that's so funny. The the details that come back to you, yeah. you know, as you you know, like, what is this? What is this about? Maybe it's about being stuck. Oh, now that you mention it, there was an actual, there was a sign. <laughs> well, you're always good for me that way, Dave. You know, this is what conversation and community leads to, at least always to, to more discovery. And, and we hope at least to more discovery for all of us, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the art of the interview and, and the art of just being able to, to share ideas uh, you know, it, it does take a little bit of time, as the West African women say. It, it's, it's maybe we need a little time to get to the watering hole to tell these stories, to have the, the exchange, the gossip, the day-to-day, the dreams, the, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's mm-hmm. what we need. And if we shortchange that and have the water right in front of us, and then we don't have the conversations that we need to have so thank you yeah you're right i just saw that i think that's hilarious i didn't see that before i was thinking of the big yellow letters you know on a big darkened sign over a you know an overgrown parking lot off an american Uh interstate i wasn't thinking of the other thing so thank you (laughs) oh yeah of course yeah that's a great place to end for this particular episode a little dream therapy um We'll talk to you next time, folks. Yeah, take care, everyone. Be safe, be well, and, you know, think about the book club. We've got a lot of interesting stuff going on, and we just really appreciate your involvement. Thank you. Thank you.